visitor with us this morning, let me extend a warm welcome to you on the church's behalf. Uh, We truly are glad that you are here, and if you're looking for a good church, want to congratulate you, you can stop looking, you have found one. All right, Uh, serious enough, this is a good place, a place where you can be encouraged and where you can grow in Christ. Uh, There are no perfect people here, least of all the guys standing up here. Uh, But it is a place that is full of God's Spirit, and therefore full of people who are growing in their Christian life. And so, I want to welcome you. Uh, And I really do hope that you will find a home here, because this is a good place. Uh, And, you know, a lot of people, even a lot of church people, wonder what the Bible is all about, because the Bible is a big book. And they see it, and they open it, and they see that there's 66 different books that are in it. And about, if you study it, about 40 different authors. It's written over about 1,500 years uh, across three continents, a wide variety of cultures. And so for a lot of people, it seems like there's a whole lot of trees. And they have difficulty stepping back and being able to see the forest that is there, because they're just, they're, just, they're just overwhelmed by all of it. But let me put it for you in a sentence, what the Bible is all about. The Bible is all about is the story of a rebellious people who rejected God and deserved punishment from Him, who instead received grace and forgiveness and new life from the same God against whom they rebelled. That's what it's about. It's about a rebellious people who rejected God and deserved punishment, who instead got grace and forgiveness from the same God they rebelled against. That's what the Bible is all about. From Genesis to Revelation, it's about the story of God's grace to rebellious people. Uh, Let me put it another way for you. Since God is our creator and he is holy and just, His divine law says that rebellion against him is high treason, and his proper punishment is death. But since God, our creator, is also merciful and loving, he himself steps into our world to bear our punishment for us. The same punishment that his holy justice demands is the same one that God accepts and receives on himself. That's grace. And that's the heart message of the Bible. Uh, God reveals that the same God who is both perfectly holy and perfectly just is at the same time perfectly loving and perfectly merciful. And you see that most perfectly, of course, in Jesus' death on the cross. God said, if you sin, you die. And then God in his love, sent Jesus to the cross so that he would die for our sin. So that the righteous requirements of God's justice were satisfied, death did come. And yet, they don't, it does not come on us, it falls on Jesus instead. And at the heart of the Bible is this message of a God who is just and a God who demands that his holiness be satisfied, and at the same time, a God who steps in by grace to meet the requirements His holiness demands. That's the Bible. 
from beginning to end. It's a story about that God. Now, there's a whole lot of other people who are characters and so forth in the Bible, and you can read about David, and you can read about Paul, and you can read about Moses, and Adam, and Jesus, and all kinds of other characters in the Bible, but at the center of it is Jesus, who is the embodiment of God's grace, and to whom all of the Old Testament looks forward, and all of the New Testament seeks to explain that he is, in fact, the God who steps into history to meet the requirements of his justice, that we might be in loving relationship with him. And I want to, the reason I bring all that up is this, that you get a very compelling example of just exactly this kind of thing, that God's justice demands discipline, demands punishment for sin and rebellion, and yet God takes that same punishment on himself that he might be in relationship with people he loves. And you have this great example of it in Exodus chapter 17. So if if you have your Bible with you this morning, um, turn to Exodus chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible that, of your own, uh, there are some on the table there in the back by the door, and you can grab one and uh, take it home with you, and it can be yours, uh, be our gift to you. Uh, but this is an example of, of what I'm talking about. Exodus chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. The Word of God says this, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water there for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people will drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now, if you remember back, uh, it's a few days of travel. Uh, from the oasis there at Elam, where they were before, uh, there were 70 palm trees and 12, uh, 12 springs uh, there at Elam, and they've traveled through the desert of Sin in the desert near Sinai to a place called Rephidim. Now, Rephidim sounds like a nice place because the, the word actually means rests, it means a place to rest. If you want to bring it up into, um, into modern parlance, it would be like this. So they traveled from Elam through the desert till they came to vacation. That was the name of the place, all right? And normally, it is a beautiful spot. If archaeologists have been able to identify it correctly, 
Uh, it's a beautiful place still to this day with these beautiful rock cliffs that surround two uh, beautiful shallow streams that flow through. And it's a, it would be a neat place to go camping. It really would. Um, but in any case, they get to Rafidim. They get to vacation. And there's no vacation because there's nothing to drink. All the streams have gone dry. And since Moses, um, since Moses is their leader, he is obviously to blame. And, you know, that when they were at, previously at, at Mara, if you remember, at least there was water there. It wasn't initially drinkable, but at least there was water. Well, here there's none. And so they go to Moses, and they begin complaining. And they say to him, hey, Moses, give us water to drink. And what they're saying essentially is this. Let me interpret here for you. They're, they're demanding that Moses do a miracle. Because everybody can see there's no water. And so essentially what they're saying is, hey, you, yeah, you, the guy with the magic stick from God, uh, give us some water. And it's as if they believe somehow that Moses, and, you know, and by extension God himself, is like the genie from Aladdin's lamp. You remember him? You know, he rubs the lamp, you know, and the billows out, right, out of the end of that thing. And he's like, yes, master, what do you command, right? And, and, and they think that God and Moses operate like that in their relationship with them. And they're saying, look, hey, we're thirsty. Let's snap, snap here. Bring the water. And interestingly, that's not how it works, is it? Because who is in charge? It isn't them. Let me clue you in. It isn't them. And Moses knows that God isn't like that and that any miracles that have happened through him have required not just God's power, but have happened in accordance with God's plan. And so Moses answers with some incisive questions. He says, why do you quarrel with me? In other words, I don't have anything to do with this, okay? I'm just the instrument, I'm the glove on God's hand, okay? I don't have anything to do with this. And there is, I'm following where God is leading. And I am not uh, responsible for the situation you are in. And on top of that, he says, why do you test the Lord? Now that is a very serious word, that word testing. Testing the Lord is another way of describing ordering God about and demanding that he would do your bidding as if he were your servant instead of your Lord and God. It's a very serious sin. In fact, if you remember, one of the places that this shows up famously is in Matthew chapter 4. You remember Matthew 4? Matthew 4 is the scene with the temptation of Jesus by Satan. And in one of the temptations, Satan takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple, which is the very highest point uh, on the, um, the outer wall of the temple overlooking, uh, overlooking one of the valleys that's there in Jerusalem. Now, it does not still standing, but it was about a 350-foot uh, difference between the valley floor and the top of this temple uh, wall that went around. 
And Satan said, well, Jesus, you know, if you want people to follow you as Messiah, it's very simple. Throw yourself off of here. And when you're not hurt, because after all, God promises that he will give his angels charge over you, lest you strike your foot on a stone. He's given you great promises, uh, you know, Jesus. So just throw yourself off. And when you get up off the valley floor unhurt, then everybody will know that you really are the Son of God and everybody will follow you and you'll be able to be the Messiah and, and you'll be recognized by everybody. Remember what Jesus says? He quotes Deuteronomy. Now, how many of us, be honest, how many of us would be able to conduct our spiritual life entirely based on our knowledge of Deuteronomy? Raise your hand. All right. Okay, but Jesus knows the word, and he responds out of Deuteronomy, and he says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, you are not in a position to presume to tell God what he must do. You are the creature, not the creator. You are the servant, not the master. And yet this sort of serious sin of putting God to the test is precisely what Moses tells the people they are doing. And on top of that, when they once they're already in sin, they go ahead and they go one better and they accuse God of attempted murder. Read your text. Look what it says. It says, right here, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock? We know what your real plan is. It was to bring us out of Egypt by, an, by God's outstretched arm and with great power and all these miracles and the Red Sea crossing and bread from heaven and quail flying in around our tents. We knew that you did all that because you really wanted us to die of thirst. <laughs> right? It sounds ridiculous when you say it that way, but nevertheless, it's not ridiculous. They're accusing God of wanting to murder them. And they are challenging God's plan and purpose and even his holy character with these words. It's a serious thing to slander God and to say of him that the reason, his whole purpose and his plan for you is to murder you. And yet that's what they're doing. They're engaged at this point in open, treasonous rebellion against God. And they have moved from being, in fact, they have moved from being the congregation of God's people to a lynch mob. Look at what, look at what verse 4 says here. So Moses cried out to the Lord, what will I do with this people? They are ready to stone me. In other words, uh, God, we're in a real problem here. This is how Moses' prayer is going. Uh, we're in a real problem here because uh, these people that you've given me to lead are currently looking around the valley for rocks to turn me into a rock pile with. This is a problem. What are you going to do, Lord? I need help. And I need it, like, now. Because if this continues, uh, I'm not going to be around much longer. And it's essentially what they've said to the prophet of God is, give us water or else. Or else what? Well, you know, we've been engaged in geology around here recently. Spooky thing, right? There's a, there's, there's a few 
there's a few thousand people who are all deciding whether or not they want to kill you. And so Moses, God sends Moses over a certain rock, the rock at Horeb. And it's near Mount Sinai, and it's also the place where God initially met Moses. You remember? He, said, he, he came to this mountain at Horeb, and God spoke to him out of the bush there. And God says uh, to Moses, Moses, I'm going to stand on that rock. And when I get there, I want you to hit it with your staff. And when you do, water is going to come out for the people. And take the elders with you so that they can uh, remember and they can serve as witnesses to all this. Okay. And, and by the way, Moses, uh, God helpfully points this out for us. He says, it's this, this, take the same stick with which you struck the Nile. To strike the rock. Now, why, you know why that's significant? Because the idea of God striking something is the way of God is 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 another way of saying that God's wrath is coming on that thing. God struck the Nile, and the water turned to blood. Right in God's judgment. So, in striking the rock, what's He doing? He is bringing judgment on that rock. But where is God? Standing on the rock. In other words, all the people are engaged in rebellion. All the people are ready to stone Moses. And so God says, I tell you what, we're going to do something else with a stone. I'm going to, my presence is going to be on this rock. Now I don't know if it was a, a visible presence. You know, I don't know if God appeared in, you know, as he often did in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord and was was visibly standing there or if uh the cloud descended on the rock or what happened exactly. The scripture doesn't tell us. But there's a reason that he says my presence is going to be on that rock. And then you take that same stick that you brought judgment on the Egyptians with, and you bring judgment not on the people, but on me. Moses, let it fall on me. And water will come out of the rock. And the people deserve nothing but judgment. But God takes their judgment on himself. And instead of bringing death to people who richly deserve it god brings forth instead life and it's a picture of the gospel that people who deserved only punishment instead got forgiveness and life in fact it's such a picture of the gospel that paul in first uh, corinthians chapter 10 verse 4 you can look this up later he says this, he looks back on this incident and he says of Israel, they all drank from the rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. He's saying, as you look back at this incident, what you see is that God was right to bring judgment on the people and yet instead of bringing judgment on them, he brought it on himself and out of him flowed living water. And it's this marvelous picture of God's grace that people who deserve judgment instead don't get it. They receive mercy. 
and God takes the judgment they are due on Himself. And God's grace provides and saves. Even for people who complain and quarrel and put God to the test. In fact, that's what this means. These two words, uh, Massah and Meribah, it's, it's essentially testing and complaining. Or, if you will, whining and griping. So they went to vacation, and instead it turned to whining and griping. They renamed it. <laughs> right? Uh, and and it, yet, in the midst of all of that, in the midst of grumbling and, and really rebellion, it's, not, it's beyond griping, it's rebellion. They're ready to kill the prophet of God. And yet, in the midst of that, God is with them as their provider and as their savior. And he'll also show them that despite their grumbling and rebellion, he's also there as their protector. And I want to show you that here, their war with Amalek. Starts in verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Moses did, oh, so Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But, while Moses, but Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone, put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book. And recite it in the years of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, let me back up here, just be clear who Amalek is. Amalek is a tribe, it's not a person. Well, it is a person initially, but he founds a tribe, and they're descendants of Esau. And they're living in this area, and, um, and they are a violent group of people. And they see Israel moving out. If you go back to, to verse 1 of, of, uh, of chapter 17 here, you see that the people are moving in kind of a long column. It says that they... When they moved on by stages, so uh, they, had, they had kind of a long, stretched-out column of people going to the next place. And if you read the book of uh, Deuteronomy, chapter 25, what you find out is that the stronger and, and more energetic were at the front of the line. Now, when we go hiking with my family, I know that that's true, Right? I have one son who loves to be at the front of the column. Wherever we are, there he is. We can always see him because he's out front. And then Karen and I many times are bringing up the rear with our stick, <laughs> you know, kind of moving along, right? And, and with, what, with what happened here, all of the older and smaller and weaker are toward the back. 
All of the senior citizens, a lot of the women, a lot of the children are bringing up the rear. And all of the young and strong and energetic are up front. And Deuteronomy chapter 25, Moses retells the story of this incident. And he calls them to remember how Amalek attacked the faint and the weary and cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind and he did not fear God. In other words, the initial attack was not a battle against Israel's army. It was a sneak attack against women and children and elderly people, people least able to defend themselves. Now, you're a real courageous dude, aren't you? Going to run up on the, the senior citizens and cut them down, the women and the little kids. Um, the next day, Moses organizes a counterattack, and he has an interesting battle plan. He says, I'm going to go up on the top of this hill with the staff of God, and you go down Joshua and fight. Now, by the way, this is the first time you meet Joshua. He's not really introduced. He just appears because, of course, this book is originally written to people who knew Joshua and knew exactly who he was, and he didn't need an introduction. Anyway, he says, I'm going to go up on the top of this hill, and I'm going to stand there with the staff of God. And uh, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> and, and here's the interesting thing. This, now, um, one thing you need to know is that when you prayed as an Israelite, you did not pray like we prayed. I mean, everybody here, when you pray, what do you do? You bow your head and you close your eyes and you pray, right? Maybe you fold your hands, maybe not, I don't know. But in Israel, what they did when they prayed was they looked up to heaven with their eyes open and their arms outstretched like this. And they would talk to God like this. Okay, So when Moses is standing on top of the hill, he's standing in a place where everybody can see him. And he is standing with his arms raised up and the staff of God in one hand. Why is he doing that? Because, number one, he's praying were his people who were down there in the battle. But number two, he's doing it in a way that everybody can see him so that they don't get confused as to who is winning the battle for them. That it isn't because they have such magnificent tactics, such brilliant generalship, because they're so you know, because the, the young men of the army are so strong and so mighty. That that has nothing to do with it. And that it has everything to do, by contrast, with the power of God being at work in them and through them. And they began to notice, you know, if you've ever tried to hold your arms above your head for an extended period of time, what happens? You get cramps. You get sore. You know, I've got, I was sanding the wall in my son's bedroom yesterday because we're trying to repaint it and there's all this drywall repair that needs done, all the banged up and holes and stuff and so I'm sanding all this my shoulder today is sore it stinks to be 40 okay it didn't used to happen <laughs> like that okay <laughs> some of you are going wait till 70 yeah I know all right it's worse I get it all right I'm, this is why we're waiting for glory uh, for our new body oh, amen but anyway when you hold your arms up you get tired and you try to hold your arms in the air with a stick in one hand all day, you're going to be really tired. 
and Moses needs help because, because they notice that when his arms begin to droop, the battle begins to go poorly. But when he gets them back up again, the battle goes better. And they're like, you know what? We need to make sure his arms don't droop because some of us might die if he's not completely dependent on the Lord through the whole thing. And it's meant to teach them that God is their protector and that, that the battle is not dependent on them and it's not dependent on their strength, but as they depend on the Lord in a committed way, God brings them deliverance and he protects them. And so he's got two guys with him, Aaron, his brother, and her, another um, one of the godly men of Israel. And they say, well, we're going to sit you down on this stool. We don't have a stool handy, so we'll get this rock and we'll set you on it and we'll hold your arms up. And we'll do it so that everybody can see we're depending on the Lord for victory. And at the end of the day, they win the battle against the, the, the attempted conquering army. Now, you can see on your outline, oh, by the way, these people, Amalek, they win this initial battle, but it continues. Um, in fact, after they win the battle, Moses leads the people in worship. And he calls, he builds an altar, and he calls the name of the altar, the Lord is my banner, and, which is interesting. You know, it's the idea that God is like my battle flag. And as long as God stands, so do I. And he says, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. I think Moses is saying, in effect, that God has sworn from his throne. In other words, he says, a hand on the throne of the Lord. It's God's hand he's talking about. That God has sworn to make war with the Amalekites and defeat them no matter how long it takes and it does take a while because uh, because king saul fights against amalek and king david fights against amalek you know where the last member of amalek shows up Some place you wouldn't expect esther a guy named haman he's the descendant of agag who was the king uh, back in the days of Saul. So about a thousand years go by between Moses and the last recorded guy from descended from Amalek. And Moses is teaching them that the Lord is their battle flag. And since he is in their midst, they can rally to him in trust, knowing that the battle is never lost because he is always present with them as their protector. Now, if you look at your outline there, you'll see I've highlighted for you, as I often do, the main point of this message, because I don't want you to miss the forest as we look at the trees. Amen? And don't miss the main point, that the Lord is always, always present as our provider and Savior and protector. And here's why that matters. Number one, since God is always present with us as our provider. We can rely on Him to meet our needs. Since God is always present as our provider, we can rely on Him to meet our needs. Let me ask you a question. Did God know when they came to vacation, when they came to Rephidim, that there was not going to be any water there? Yes. 
Did God know that in 2009 we would go through an economic crisis as a country? Yes. Did God know that some of us would lose our jobs? Yes. Did God know that some of us would have financial problems? Yes. Did God know that some of us would have health problems? Yes. Did God know that some of us would have relationship struggles? Yes. But the solution to those problems is the same in every case. To trust God to be our provider. Amen? Because He's always present with us as our provider. He has revealed His goodness and power to us in the past, and He will continue to reveal His goodness and power to us in the present and in the future because God does not change. He is still the God who loves us and therefore provides for us. He meets our needs. And He's always present with us as our provider, and we can therefore rely on Him every day to meet our needs. We know He's going to be there. You know, I can't tell you the number of times in my own life or as a pastor I've witnessed this happened, that I'm in an impossible situation, and I pray, and I pray, and I say, God, you know, if you don't deliver here, we're in a heap of trouble. And then, just at the last moment, right when I really need it, God delivers. You know why he does that? So that we would not think that it was simply a coincidence, but that we would recognize this is my provision. And you can trust me because I'm always there as your provider. Number two, since God is always present with us as our Savior, we can thank Him for forgiving our rebellion. You know, one of my favorite things to do is to tell people about the God of the Bible, who not only does not give Israel what they deserve here at a place that Moses named for the rebellion, but who didn't give me what I deserved either. What did I deserve? Well, I am a sinner. Grade A, USDA choice, government-inspected, certifiable sinner. Amen? And so are you. And yet God did not give me what I deserved. What I deserved is, is honestly, if we're being totally honest, the very instant of my first sin, I deserved to be struck down dead right there, whack, and go to hell for eternity. That's what I deserved. And instead, what I got was God's forbearance until such time as someone shared the gospel with me and I believed in Jesus Christ, and then he forgave my sin, brought me into his family, as, a, as adopted me as his child, and gave me not only new life in the here and now, but the promise of eternal life in the, in the hereafter. What kind of a God does that? This kind. The God of the Bible. The God who really exists as the only God worthy of the name. My sin put God to the test. 
And yet God, in his grace, stood on a rock called Calvary. And in his death, living water flowed out to me. Amen? That's the God of the Bible. That's the God of Exodus 17 and John chapter 4 and Revelation 22 and everywhere else in the Scripture. The God who forgives rebellion for those who turn to him in faith. And we should never stop thanking God for being always present with us as our Savior. Because he always is. Last thing, since God is always present with us as our protector, we can trust him in all circumstances. I love that passage, Romans 8. Remember? It says, if God is for us, who can be against us? I'll assure you, God has defeated much worse enemies than the Amalekites. That he has dealt with much worse circumstances than no water. That he has dealt with much more difficult circumstances than mine. Because on my behalf, God has defeated sin and death and Satan and hell. And since these things are true, what can any mere man do to me? Nothing. What can the demons of hell do to me? Nothing. And so I should have just tremendous courage and tremendous peace as I go through life. Amen? Because God is my protector. He is my banner. Just like, you know, you ever watch those old movies? I love to watch like Civil War movies and stuff. You know, and they have the flag and you know that as long as the flag still flies. In fact, our national anthem is about that, right? wanted to see if our flag was still there. And as long as the flag still flew, we knew the battle wasn't lost. But we have a flag that never ceases flying. We have the Lord as our banner. And we can always rally to him, knowing that the battle is never lost. Because he is always present. And he will always protect and always provide and always save and always love. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a great God and a Savior, a provider, a protector, a giver of new life, the bearer of punishment that we deserve. Father, your works are too wonderful for us to even describe. And yet, Father, in our attempts, we worship you. And, Father, we pray that you would be honored as, you, as we worship you and as we declare your greatness and goodness and glory here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.